Welcome to Church at the Well podcast. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. If you would turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1, please, and please stand for the reading of God's Word. James chapter 1. This will be the shortest reading we've ever had at Church at the Well. Verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we just want to thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to be here. Lord, we just ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to what you have to say to us. Lord, we pray that as we begin this series through James, that, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would speak very clearly to the areas of our lives where we need to apply what he is speaking. Lord, we want Jesus to be glorified in all that's said and done today. I pray anything that's spoken of me would just be forgotten. Everything that's yours would be ingrained in our hearts and minds. Lord, help us to leave here different than we came in. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. 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 So we're starting a new series. Um, We obviously just came out of Easter. Um, It's always interesting. And then for those of you who are walking around like zombies, stick with me. I know that we were at a wedding last night and it went really late and everybody's danced out. Um, so just kind of hang in there. We're only doing one verse today, which makes things pretty simple. We've titled this series through James, Faith Works. Um, obviously, this is a play on words, right? And it's always bad when you have a play on words and have to explain it, but I'm going to do it anyway because I think it's important to understand why we're going through the book of James. First, faith works, meaning faith is effective, right? Meaning if you, when, when we have faith in Jesus, it's effective in making change in our life. Now, what's interesting about faith being effective, and I hear this all the time, is people will say, well, you know, what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me, so I'm going to put my faith and trust in this. The reality of faith being effective is that it's not faith itself that's effective, it's the object of the faith. Meaning, I can put my faith in some things that are absolutely hopeless, And the end result will be hopelessness. So when we're talking about faith works, James makes this very clear that as individuals, as human beings who are looking to put our faith in something because we all put our faith in something, what we choose is vitally important. Um, I had an individual once when we had moved to Boston 12 years ago, and almost 12 years ago, and was one of my first conversations, and he's like, well, you know, I put my faith in this, and I'm like, how is that working out for you? And he said, so far, it's not working out so good. And I'd use this analogy of saying, you know, you can, you can put your faith in something that will truly disappoint you in the aspect that it, it does matter what the object is. If I take some cyanide, right, and I have all the faith in the world that it's not going to make me sick or kill me, guess what's going to happen if I take the cyanide? It's going to kill me. So it deter- the object of your faith is so important. And James makes it very clear that in order for us to have lives worthy, to have lives that are going to create purpose in the gospel in Jesus, our faith needs to be in him. And then the second component of this is faith works. If you've ever read the book of James, you know that James spends a lot of time trying to balance this idea between faith and works. We say we're saved by faith alone in Jesus. That's accurate. But if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, 
and you've been saved and you've come to faith in Jesus and he has reconciled you and the Holy Spirit has entered you permanently and you are his. You belong to him. Then your life should look different. Meaning, what you believe dictates how you live. And there's so much in the world today when we look at how our culture functions, all of the temptations that we have, all of the issues that are going on, all of the pain and suffering. Um, at this wedding last night, the, the, the individual who gave the wedding gave an interesting statistic. He said that currently in the United States, in 2023, they did this poll throughout all people all over the country, and they said, how important is religion to you? They didn't ask what religion, just how important is it? And they said 29% of the population of the United States said that it was relatively important. It wasn't that long ago that it was 70%. Things have changed so drastically and so fast. And how we live out our faith in today's culture looks different. It's got unique challenges. And I think one of the things that James is going to challenge us with is if you truly believe it, do you look different than those who are around you? you know, he's going to talk about things like suffering and how we handle things like politics and what we do with the belief that we have and what kind of works we should be involved in and what true love actually looks like. And all these things are in this book that he wrote. But the reality is we have to keep in mind that as a Christ follower, if we truly believe it, then, then that belief is going to be lived out in our lives. And so what areas of your life, if I were just to say, okay, we're done, we're not, but, and you say that you believe the gospel, what areas of your life are the gospel not being applied? I say this a lot. James is going to kind of pound this home. Um, so we've got this faith works. We said, I'm only going to do one verse today because I think it's interesting. Um, so if you haven't turned there yet, go to James chapter 1. It says, James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. First question is, who's this James guy? Right? There's three James that I have found that are mentioned in Scripture. One, the most famous, you probably know, of Peter, James, and John. He was one of the sons of Zebedee, son of thunder. We know that he died early on at the beginning of the church and was martyred, so we know that he didn't write this book. The second James that we're aware of in Scripture was written before the crucifixion. He's mentioned, it's like the son of Alphys. And he's only mentioned once, and we, after, the, after the crucifixion and the resurrection, we don't even know what happened to him, so we know that he didn't write the book. That leaves one left. This is James, the brother of Jesus. And this just, I mean, it generates so many questions in my head, right? Like, James, the brother of Jesus. Uh, some of you may not even realize that Jesus had a brother, Right? I know some religious belief systems would say that Mary only had one child, Jesus, and that's not accurate. We know that she had at least James. We know that there was a family. We know that Mary and Joseph had children. So when we're looking at James, the brother of Jesus, this would be the younger brother of Jesus. He would be a half-brother. Um, I have processed through this so many times and thought, okay, I think my family's weird, and you think your family's weird? Like, this is about as weird as it gets. Right? I mean, when you think about, I mean, I've, I've thought through this so many times from, from James' perspective, right? Like, how many times did Mary go, why can't you just be more like Jesus? 
your brother wouldn't have done it that way, right? I mean, this sibling rivalry would have been fascinating. What do the neighbors say, right? Like Jesus is getting older, and he's making some claims that are a little bit outlandish for the people that are there, and his brother is listening to these claims that he's making, and he's like, dude, come on, you're not God, you're my brother. Like, how, what, do you, what do you mean? How are you claiming to be this, right? The neighbors looking at Jesus and James and going, man, that Jesus guy, he is different, but James, he's such a troublemaker. He's always doing the opposite of what Jesus is doing. It's so strange. And then remember that time when Mary claimed that there was no father for Jesus, that the father was the Holy Spirit? What was that all about, right? I mean, the rumors that would be going around about this family, it's bizarre. It is, it is a weird family. And as I was processing, like, what would this look like to be the brother of James? One of the things that I found fascinating is not only is he the half-brother, so he would be the natural son of Mary and Joseph, but later on we find out before he writes this book, he actually becomes one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. Where's this shift take place? To go, okay, I'm James, my older brother is Jesus, and he's making strange claims I know his mom because he has the same mom I have. And we know that there's scriptures, we can go over a few of them, where James and his family would come to Jesus and actually say, you're crazy, you need to stop doing what you're doing. There's one moment where his family shows up while he's teaching and they actually believe that they have the right to interrupt his teaching and say, hey, stop, we need you to do something else. James didn't believe that Jesus was who he claimed he was. How does he go from that to leading the church in Jerusalem? And that's a fast, I mean, I don't know exactly. But what we do know is it probably didn't take place until after the resurrection. We know that James, when we know that Jesus at his crucifixion, when his family was listed who was there, the only one that was listed in Scripture that was there was Mary. So I'd imagine that James probably wasn't there because he may have been doing something like, my crazy brother has finally taken it too far and he's finally getting what we figured he would get if he didn't stop. All these heresies he's been saying and I don't even want to be there. We have stories in scripture. If you go to Genesis chapter 37, we have the story of Joseph. If you haven't grown up in Bible world, you know that Joseph was this individual whose father kind of put favor on him and there was a series of dreams and Joseph was going to change the world basically. And his brothers were like, seriously? Like, why is everybody not looking at us and looking at our brother Joseph? And they end up selling their own brother into slavery because of this sibling rivalry and this jealousy that's going on. And I can only imagine, I mean, I, what would it be like to have Jesus as a brother? And how do you get yourself to a point to where you say, not only is Jesus my brother, but he ends up making this claim in this first passage, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That word Lord is Messiah, Savior. It's even, it even has connotations of declaration that he is God himself. And James is making that claim at the very beginning of this book. It's, it's a complete contrast to what we see in Scripture where his family's going, we don't know what to do with this odd kid who does weird things 
and all of the issues that come with that. And then now James is going, you know what? I can tell you right now with everything in me that my brother is God himself. Like, how do you get to that point? If you have a brother, like I'm looking around the room and I know some of you have brothers, you'd probably never get to the point where you're like, yeah, my, my brother's God himself, right? You've seen the things that your brother has done that he shouldn't have done. You continue to get into the arguments or whatever it is, right? I was also trying to process, because I want this to make sense and, and be real to us, like, the closest relationship that I have, obviously, is me and my wife, right? And so I don't have any actual, like, brothers. Um, I had a lot of sisters. So I had one sister and five stepsisters. So there was a lot of estrogen in my household. And I never knew what it really was like to be raised or grow up with a brother, right? I have brothers now. But I... It was kind of a, a different world. And I, I watched brothers, and I watched them kind of wrestle and fight and argue and be there for each other. Brothers had this kind of bond where it's like, I hate you and love you at the same time, right? Where I can't stand anything that you do, but as soon as somebody's messing with you, I'm the first one that's there. And I would imagine that even though Jesus was odd, and maybe James saw Jesus as odd, there would have been this relationship where how many times did James have to stand up for his brother because he was being made fun of? Or, and he doesn't even necessarily believe what Jesus is saying, right? Uh, the closest thing I can come to this is with Christy, my wife, where there's moments where we might get into an argument or there's a disagreement, but that love is always there, right? But I can tell you right now, Christy will never come and say, oh yeah, my husband, that's God, and he's never sinned, and I'm going to put my faith and trust in him and him alone, right? This is crazy when you think about it. Like, I don't know, think about who your closest, the closest person you are in relationship with. What if they started to make the claim that they were God? What would you do? How would you respond? What if it was somebody in your family? I mean, it, it just, what an, once again, what an odd, odd relationship. So we have this claim from the author. We know he's the brother of Jesus. We know that he's making this faith claim about who Jesus is. We know there's come a point. I would imagine that the point where he came to faith would be the moment that he heard that his brother was died. He knew that he was in the tomb. Three days later, Jesus rises and Jesus presents himself to his brother. And at that point, that might get a little real, right? I mean, it's not often that we see brothers or relatives come back from the dead, right, after having predicted it. It's pretty rare, as far as I know. It's happened once. We have this moment, probably, like, what would that conversation be like? What would it look like for James to humble himself down in front of his brother and go, I know you're my brother. I know that we were raised together. I know that we have the same mom, but you are the savior of the world. As radical as that must have been in that moment, right? I mean, I've been in ministry quite a while now, and I have learned that the hardest people to impact are the ones that you're closest to. Right? I mean, Jesus himself said it's hard for a man to be a prophet in his own hometown. The closer you get to people, the more they see your flaws. 
the more that they have opinions about what you do, the more they believe that they have the right to voice certain things, and they might. You might have given it to them, right? And you imagine, like, James processing this time that he had with Jesus and going, now that I think about it, I don't remember Jesus ever doing anything that he shouldn't have. I don't remember him ever telling a lie. I never had to cover for Jesus, right? He always told the truth. And as he began to process this, and then his brother shows up after, you know, raising from the dead and going, okay, there's, there's got to be some truth to what's happening here. And then he revolves his life around helping build the church. That's a pretty radical change. And James is one of these guys for me that I go, if the Lord can save James, the brother of Jesus, he can save anyone. I used to have this friend, well, it was like one of my brother-in-law's friends, we'll call him John. And I met John for the first time, and I thought, this guy's unsavable. Like in my lack of faith, when I met John, I thought, if there's somebody that Jesus can't save, it's this guy, right? Like, he was a mess. He, every stereotype of just a bad dude, this guy had. He didn't have any respect. He, he, was, just, he was just rough in every way possible. If there, was some, if there was a sin that could be committed, he was not only going to commit the sin, but he was going to take it to another level so that he could be the one to do it, right? He's just bad. And I remember the moment years later when the Lord brought him to his knees and he repented of his sin and he put his faith and trust in Jesus. And in that moment watching him, I hit my knees to repent as well. Right? It's looking at the story of James, it's a reminder that Jesus will save anyone. And you'll hear me say he'll take you exactly as you are, but he doesn't leave you that way. John changed. Like his life began to change as a result. I can only imagine what James, when he finally comes to the realization of who Jesus is is, and all the experience that he's had with Jesus, what his life was going to look like afterwards. It's going to be pretty phenomenal to think about. All right, so we know the author. This is who's writing it. Now we got to look at who he's writing to. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So typically when we read in Scripture about the 12 tribes, we're thinking about the tribes of Israel. So there's 12 tribes of Israel. We know that. We know that James is a pastor of a church in Jerusalem, so he's obviously very familiar with Jewish culture. Most of the believers that are going to be in this church are coming from the Jewish religion. They're seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of what they had been told was going to happen all the way back in the book of Genesis, Genesis 3.15, the first gospel, right, where Jesus is preached. And so they see Jesus as the fulfillment of that. They've come to faith in Jesus. And James is working through, and we know this, in the book of Acts, we see a lot of issues with this. Okay, how do we relate the old law, the old covenant, to the new covenant? What do we have to do? What do works actually look like? What do we have to continue to do, and what did Jesus fulfill? And there's these, all these councils that are taking place. In fact, James becomes one of the key components of one of the Jerusalem councils where they're trying to figure out, okay, what are we actually burdening people with? Like, do they have to follow the law? Things like, do they have to be circumcised to be saved? What's up with the food thing? 
Is, has God released bacon to the Jews at this point? Right? Which was probably the dirtiest trick in the history of the world. So there's these, this trying to fulfill and, and understand the practicalities of saying Jesus is Lord and he has fulfilled the law and he's the last sacrifice and I'm putting my faith and trust in him. So now what does my life look like? And James would have been in the midst of that as he was pastoring this church in Jerusalem. His conversations would have been fascinating. People like Paul, right, who had dedicated their entire life to the Old Covenant, their entire life to, to trying to understand who God was. The idea that Jesus himself was 100% man and 100% God would have gone completely against everything that they had been taught, right? When you look at Jewish history, they kept getting punished by God by not saying there's just one God. Every time they would raise up an idol or whatever it was or fall into the religion of a culture and they added another false God to who God was in their practice, then God would come in and punish them. And now you have this guy who Mary lived down the street and she says she was born of a virgin. She said that Joseph's not the father and there's this really odd family and then he ends up dying. We crucified him, we killed him and he rose from the dead and says in scripture that tons of people saw him. Now what do we do with this? Like, is God going to punish us because we're saying Jesus is God because we know there's only one God and this has been beat into our history forever? How do we deal with the Trinity? How do we deal with the idea of, you know, all of the laws? Our entire life has been revolved around what's going on. The Pharisees have saddled us with things like, on the Sabbath, you can only take so many steps, and now you're telling me I'm free from that. What is freedom from the old covenant that's been fulfilled by Jesus look like practically. It'd be huge life change. And James was right in the middle of trying to help them understand what that looks like. And what's crazy is it's his brother that he's saying is the Messiah. So you just add all of that onto him. I mean, I would imagine that there were people going, you know what, I just heard about this and I know that you're the brother of Jesus, so what do you got, right? I don't know if you guys have seen the Disney movie Encanto, right? Where there's this character in it, Maribel, who doesn't have the gift, right? And they're like, what do you got? And they see her as less than. What would James have been seen like in the shadow of Jesus? So your brother died for the sins of the world. What do you got? How are you going to, I mean, you're just trying to figure this out as well, James. You've just come to faith. You've just realized that this person you were raised with is the Messiah, and now you're trying to help us understand what this looks like practically. James is in this point where the Old Testament and the New Testament, sorry, the Old Covenant and New Covenant are clashing together. He's going, we got to figure this out, right? It would have been a hard time. Um, It would have been a difficult moment. So he's not just writing to the tribes, we know that he's writing to what I would probably say are Jewish believers. Individuals who have been raised in the Old Covenant, have been attempting to become saved by the works that they've been doing, by following this stringent law and realizing no matter how hard we work, we can't seem to attain that which we want. This law is overwhelming. It feels like a burden. I'm tired of having to take sacrifices the temple 
It's awful. If you know anything about the sacrificial system, you know it was extremely messy. It was very personal, and it was just, ugh. Right? I don't have another word for it. It was a bloody mess. And as James is trying to navigate what this looks like, he writes this book to say, I'm going to help you guys understand how we're going to balance these things. You're not saved by works. We know that because your entire life you've been trying to do it and you can't do it. You're saved by your faith in Jesus, but works has something to do with that. If your life is changing and you understand who Jesus is, then your life's going to look different. If you truly believe that Jesus is who he says he is, then how do you apply him to every area of your life? And if you're not applying it, do you really believe it? How do you get to a place where you say, I have personally accepted Jesus as my Savior, and I'm being sanctified to accept him as Lord in every way possible by his grace, but to say, okay, I believe that, but I'm just going to keep living the same way that I've always lived. It doesn't work. It's no different than what was going on here. Okay, you guys are claiming to have faith in Jesus. We know that he fulfilled the, the old covenant, so since your life has been grounded in the old covenant, we now have to get your life grounded in the new covenant, and things should look different. So what, is it, what should it look like? like? How much works should you actually be doing? If works don't save you, then what's really the value? How do we balance this idea that I don't have to do anything to be saved because Jesus did everything? But there's these commands that Jesus gives. In fact, in the book of James, there's hundred and actually no fifty-six commands in like a hundred and eight verses. It's crazy. There's still commands that are coming and saying you have to, you're supposed to live this way. Jesus actually gave commands right when he was alive. You're supposed to live this way. So how do we de- how do we designate? How do we wrestle with the freedom that we have in Jesus? verse the commands that he's given us and the way to live and this is not easy it's not and our culture is changing so quickly he's going to say things like if you truly want to love then you need to serve widows and orphans and we're going to have to come to the conclusion of going yes that's still valid but what else is valid widows and orphans were a big issue back then they still are Some other things have become a big issue now. What does it look like to humble ourselves to a place where we're willing to actually live out the faith that Jesus has given us? How do we keep from falling into the trap that works are tied to salvation somehow (laughs) and still be required to do them? It's complicated. I think when we look at different religious sects that have come up with, even within Christianity, different denominations, it's typically this balance that creates the differences. How much do works really play into this? How powerful is what Jesus did? Is, it re- is, is the gospel, is Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection 
and him sitting at the right hand of the Father as our advocate, is that really enough? Then what is required of me? Is there anything required of me? If I make this claim, how should my life be changing? If this idea of sanctification becoming more and more like Jesus, being set apart on a daily basis as we get to know him better, like scripture tells us to do, does that mean that I get to a point where I've like reached it? I, I'm always wrestling with this one. It's like, have you, Scripture says we're to be humble. How do you become humble without claiming you're humble? Like, these are difficult questions. If I stood here and said, guys, listen, I'm telling you right now, I have figured out what humility looks like, and I am now the the picture perfect of humility you just need to be humble like me i have just lost all humility how do you what do you do with that how do you achieve some of these things that jesus is asking us to live without losing it in the process without becoming more prideful how do we prevent from doing works in our faith that keep Jesus from getting the glory and us not taking the glory. These are all questions that the book of James is going to dive into. And what you're going to find is every single time James is going to come back to, it's the power of the gospel that's going to allow you to wrestle with these things and is going to allow you to understand what needs to continually change in your life. It's the gospel that reminds us that you're never going to arrive to that perfect, you're not going to be the perfect Christian, right? You're never going to get there until Jesus comes back and everything's restored. And even then, we're going to go, well, we didn't do it, he did. But how do we walk this life in the midst of knowing that? How do we find hope in the works that we're doing going, I'm, I'm attempting to achieve something that can never be achieved and I'm attempting to achieve it for somebody else's glory and not my own. Meaning our life as a Christ follower is designed to bring glory to Jesus in every single thing that we do. But we have works to do. There's this bizarre balance and understanding. I the idea, one of the things that, that I struggle with, and we see it in Scripture, right? We, this idea of the, the rock star pastor, I think finally in the United States we're coming out of this because I think it's just horrible, right? We've seen the results of it. The, we see in Scripture people like Paul, right, who people are saying, well, I'm, I'm not really following Jesus, I'm following Paul because the guy can speak or he does this crazy stuff or he's bold or whatever it is, right? So the temptation even back then was to take others and elevate them up or, and then to covet that position and say, oh, I want to enter ministry and I want to have that kind of influence or that kind of respect or whatever it is. Even in ministry, this becomes a huge temptation and these lines get blurred very quickly. We're taking some people through elder training right now and one of the things I keep saying, whether they're hearing it or not, I don't know, but it's this isn't about you. This isn't about you. 
This isn't about you. And as soon as it comes a, becomes about you, trust me, I've been there. As soon as it becomes about you, you're done. It's over. It has to be about Jesus. So right off the bat, the question is, How are you currently applying the gospel? How are you applying it correctly? How are you applying it incorrectly? How are you viewing the works that you're doing? Are you, are you viewing your works as going, oh, I'm so happy that I did this because I know that God's smiling at me right now. Or do you fully grasp that in the gospel, God loves you regardless? That there's nothing you can do in the gospel that will get God to love you more. It's not possible. We don't work to gain God's favor. I, I think one of the biggest flaws that we make in our culture is to view God as somebody sim similar to our earthly father. When we look at the failure of the man, right, and the difficulty that we have around fathers. Everybody, you know, I, I don't know, I'm not a psychologist, but they say everybody's got a father wound. I don't know what that means, but I know my dad did some things that I look at and go, okay, that impacted me, and I'm a father. I know I've done some things that have probably impacted my kids negatively. I'm probably still doing it, right? And when we begin to associate God the Father with our human father, we can find ourselves doing things that aren't gospel for motivations that aren't gospel motivated, right? It's like, oh, I, I just want the approval of my father. I just want the approval of God. Here's the thing. You need to understand this as we begin understanding this balance. In the gospel, you're approved. In the gospel, you're free. In the gospel, you've been forgiven, in the gospel, you have new life. In the gospel, you don't have to worry about the sins that you've committed in the past or the sins that you're going to commit in the future. They've been covered. In the gospel, it's not about attempting to please God. It's about attempting to bring him more glory. And in doing so, we actually get more joy, which is so backward. Think of... So I remember as a little boy, I was never good at fixing things. I try really hard, okay? I do. I'm like, oh, I can fix that. And typically, it's a mess, right? I was just, that was not my thing. I didn't, t I wasn't that kid who, like, took everything apart. I was the kid who was outside running and playing and, and playing sports and doing whatever, right? So I never understood, like, mechanics of things very well. And but I, I look at that and I'm like, okay, when I take things apart and I don't really understand what's happening and I'm trying to fix something, it doesn't always get fixed the way that it's supposed to. In fact, I've gotten to this place, and some of you men are going to say amen. If it can't be fixed with a hammer, I'm not probably going to try to fix it, right? You're just going to beat it. Have you ever done it with a computer, <laughs> right? Like, just hit it a few times and see if it works. Or your TV's not working, your cable's not working, you just hit the box and it doesn't work. And I'm like, well, I did everything that I possibly could <laughs> to fix it, right? And it's still not working. It's got to be a big issue, right? Like, when I process the way that, like, my brain works and I process the, this idea of trying to, like, I, I can't seem to fix anything, it's easier, I guess, for me to go, 
since I am not capable of fixing anything that doesn't require just unplug and plug in, and I'm, I'm being hard on myself, I, I actually do okay. <laughs> Everybody that knows me is laughing. I think it's easier to kind of bring that over to go, there's nothing in my heart that I have the capability of fixing. Right, like, and I don't know if that works for everyone. I'm just, I, I'm realizing that when, when you're attempting to fix something and, it, and it's fixed, like the professional comes in, they get it fixed, and it starts doing what it was created to do, what happens? It functions like, exactly like it's supposed to. There's been so many times where I've attempted in my poor attempts to fix something to get something that's not supposed to be used for what I'm using it for to work for something, right? Duct tape is the perfect example, right? It fixes everything, right? No. It, it holds something together for a very limited time, and it might work for a second, but it's not actually doing it's not fixing it back to what it was created to do. What I have found is it's fascinating that when we get fixed by Jesus and we start behaving the way that we're supposed to and what we were created to do, it's like he starts ripping the duct tape off. It's, it's no longer Ke like Kevin's trying to come in and fix something the creator, the inventor of everything is fixing it and restoring it back to what it was supposed to be. And we know when anything that's created is doing what it's supposed to do, it's going to bring its greatest joy. Isn't that weird? I, I think that's weird because I think oftentimes what we're trying to do is we're saying, I mean, all of humanity is constantly going, I just want to be happy. I just want to be loved. I just want to experience joy. And God's going, well, you can do that through Jesus because I'll restore you back to what you were created for. I will give you purpose. I will give you the ability to reconcile with me. I will give you love. I will make everything in your life geared around bringing glory to Jesus, if you'll let me. And in doing so, you're going to be the created being that you were supposed to be, even though you're going to continue to fail, but even that's going to be taken care of because I don't want you to live a life in guilt. I want you to live a life in Jesus. Amen. And that brings greater joy than anything else that we can ever imagine. It's so bizarre. We spend so much time seeking after something that Jesus has already done, even as the church. And that is crazy. I do the same thing. It's like Jesus is like, I'm enough, trust me. And I go, not really, I want this. The gospel answers every question. I grew up, we went to this thing called Sunday school. It doesn't exist around here, right? Because everybody's like, why would you go to school on Sunday? Just, there's been no context for it. But you would go, and you would go into a classroom, and they taught you the Bible, right, at young age. And I learned pretty quickly, because I was the guy that was always kind of the ADD kid running around, that any time the teacher called on me, no matter what I was doing, if I answered Jesus, it was probably going to be right. Right? Jesus. Kevin, what do you think? Jesus, I don't even know what you're talking about, but Jesus is the answer. And every time, it made me sound very profound. 
right? Wow, Kevin applied, Kevin was able to see the gospel in the story of Jacob. That's amazing. This kid must be called, right? And I'm just figuring out the answer, the answer key is Jesus. 2023, I can tell you that one of my big prayers this year has been that the Lord would get me back to that in every way. What would it look like in my life if the answer was always Jesus? Because it's not. Oftentimes I'm trying to come up with my own response or deal with it on my own or, okay, do something clever or whatever it looks like. And the answer's just been there. It's Jesus. I wonder what the church would look like if the church went back to that Sunday school mentality and every problem that came our way, every issue that we had, every relational moment, every temptation that was there, we just went, the answer is Jesus. What would happen? What would happen in our lives as individuals? It it would change everything. And this is what's fascinating. The church knows that. I have not said one single thing today that you don't know if you're a Christ follower. You know that the answer to everything is Jesus. James is going to push on us and go, then why do we do it a different way? Why? And James is going to come from the perspective of going, listen, I lived with Jesus for a really long time. And I refused to believe who he was and I refused to apply the truth of who he was, and my life was a disaster as a result. And he's gonna look at the church, and he's gonna go, many of you who claim to know Jesus are doing the exact same thing. I knew, I knew Jesus my whole life, yet I didn't say the answer was Jesus. What would happen if we did? This is the journey we're heading towards. And I hope it excites you, but I also know that it's going to be hard. Right off the bat, next week he starts talking about suffering, and we're like, I'm out. I'm not coming back. (laughs) Right? How well do you suffer? What is suffering? Like, how do you define it? What does it look like? Is the gospel being applied to it? Is Jesus the answer, or do we just go, ugh? Right? So that's the end of our introduction. What I want to challenge with you is this. So I, I'm going to classify you in two groups of people. We're not supposed to classify people anymore. I'm going to do it anyway, so you can write me letters later. There's those of you in this room who are still seeking. I know your story because it's the story of every other person in this room. The story of humanity is the same story. It exists for everyone. Everybody thinks they're unique. You're really not that unique. We all suffer from the same disease, sin. The only remedy is Jesus. Your sin looks a little different than mine, maybe, may not. We, the only creativity we really have is how well we sin, right? How much we get away with. Our stories are the same in the component that we desire to be loved, we desire to be sought after, we desire to feel like we matter, we desire to have purpose in our life, we desire to be joy-filled, we desire to have relationship with a father that would never disappoint us, that cares enough about us to say, 
I am going to discipline you when you need it because it's for your good, not just because I'm angry. But I'm always going to love you and I'm never going to fail you. And I'm never going to leave you. We, we all suffer from that, but there's some in this room who have sought answers to those problems in other things. It could have been relationships with people. I was talking to a woman recently who's like, I have just been bouncing around from boyfriend to boyfriend trying to find some purpose in my life. And all I heard was, okay, my value is based upon what this man sees in me. And all I could think of is the answer is Jesus. That's always going to be disappointing, no matter who it is. Uh, it could be, like I said, in relationship, it could be in children. I, so many parents these days are putting their children on these pedestals. And it doesn't take long before you realize your children are messy just like you are. And the reason they are is because you're their parent. Right? Messed up people trying to raise messed up kids. Right? It just That's how it works. We pass on all kinds of things that we wish we wouldn't. But that's not the answer. The answer is Jesus. Some of us attempted other forms of religion. I'm going to work for this. I'm going to do everything I can to try to please this holy God and realize that you can't because you can't even live to the standard that you set for yourself. If you don't believe that, all we have to do is go, who in here is as fit as they want to be? And everybody's going to be like, nope, why not? Because I don't live to the standard that I even set for myself. Right? That's just one thing. Sometimes I think we put our value and trust in what we do for a living. How much money we make. How we're viewed by other people around us that we think are respected high, and if we get their respect, then life will be good. There's so many things. How we, how we perform in the athletic field. There's so many things that we tend to put our faith and trust in. And when I'm saying I know your story, I know that if you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus, I can tell you right now, you're still looking for that thing. And whatever it is that you choose next is going to give you the same result. You're going to be all excited about it for a moment, and then you're going to realize that it too failed you. Because the answer is Jesus. So if you're here today and you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus and you're still searching, I, I love you enough to tell you, you, you can keep searching. You're welcome to come here. I mean, we'll keep preaching the gospel. But the reality is nothing's going to change until you truly give yourself to Jesus. It's all going to feel fleeting and empty. And you can do that today. Right? You can... I say this every week, right? You, don't, you can come talk to one of us. Pastor Matt's right over there. You can go talk to him. Or you can turn to the person next to him and go, do you know Jesus? And if they say yes, say, can we have a conversation? doesn't have to be a pastor. But until you find Christ, until you find Jesus, you're going to keep seeking, and it's going to keep failing. But for the church, there's another challenge here. For those of you who claim to know Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, 
Are you living it? If our goal is to be like Christ, how do you see other people? Like, who do you avoid? Who in the room do you go, oh, I can't stand these people? I would never want to be friends with that person. What, does your life look different than it did before? Is it continually growing? Like, that's, to me, that's one of the, the clearest signs of a disciple. I, I'm realizing that the mature individual isn't somebody that knows more scripture, even though that's important, and it's part of it. The mature Christ follower is the one that's repenting quicker than they used to. Because they know the answer is what? Jesus. So it's, it's this, this thing of going, I know the answer is Jesus, I know the answer is Jesus, therefore I'm going to come back to Jesus every single time I have a problem. And the faster you're doing that, we would say the more sanctified you're becoming. Where is the gospel not being applied? Who are you really close to that doesn't even know you're a Christ follower? I mean, I don't, I don't think we should meet people on the street and go, you've got to know Jesus and blah, 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 and because it, it's awkward, right? We build relationships with people. We get permission to present the gospel. Jesus saves people. But if you're really close to someone and they don't know what you believe as a Christ follower, I don't think you're close to them because they don't really know you, or do they? I don't know what the Holy Spirit's doing in here right now, but I know that this journey is going to be a tough one. It's going to be a tough one for me. If you really want to know why I'm preaching through the book of James, is because I need to hear this. So I'm just assuming that some of you need to hear it as well. Some of you, as Christ followers, have spent too much time claiming you know Jesus just like James claims he knew Jesus but didn't put your faith and trust in him. And it's time to stop. So, the invitation's here. I, I don't know what the Holy Spirit's doing in your heart. But we're going to take communion here as an opportunity to respond to that. There's some rules in communion, right? It says that we need to make sure our heart is clean. And here's, here's the reality to that. That's a tough understanding because your heart's never clean. But what it is saying is if the Holy Spirit's putting something on your heart to say, you know that you're not living the way that you're supposed to in a very specific area, or you know that you have something against somebody that you're about to take communion with, you should handle that first. Fair. Why? Because the answer is Jesus. If you're here today and you know Christ, you are welcome to participate in communion with us. You don't have to be a member of church at the well. But here's the thing. If you don't know Jesus, I'm going to beg you, don't partake. Because the last thing I want, and it would go against everything that we just taught, is for you to believe that you could find some hope in some juice that we bought at the grocery store and some bread that we just broke into little pieces. It represents something huge to Christ followers. But if you think that doing something religious is going to put you in favor with God, you've missed everything. That's not the answer. The answer is Jesus. So the worship team is going to come up. We're going to sing another song. And I'm just inviting you to take everything that was said today and just begin to process through it. If you know Jesus, 
What does that look like in your life? Are you like James or what's going on? What needs to change? If you don't, maybe it's time you did. So I'm going to pray. You're going to be in, there's communion on both sides here. Um, and you can participate as you feel led. Last thing. If you don't know Christ and you do want to talk to somebody, Pastor Matt's right over there. And I'm going to pray that you have the boldness and the courage to go do such. Let me pray. God, thanks for your word. Lord, this one silly verse that introduces an individual who grew up with you that didn't know you that's being written this book being written to individuals who are struggling understanding how to apply the gospel in their life because of the culture that they've lived in because of the sin that's in their life Lord this relates to us more than we can possibly imagine Lord I, I ask that if anything comes out of today that people would leave here saying the answer is Jesus. Lord, so I pray for those in this room right now who have never accepted Christ as their Savior and their Lord. Lord, I ask that you would regenerate their heart right now. That you would bring them to yourself. That you would save them. And Lord, I pray for your church. Lord, we mess things up all the time. And we know the answer is Jesus. We know that, Lord. So Lord, would you ingrain that into our hearts? Would you, would Jesus be the anthem in everything that we're doing when we're struggling? May we, we see Jesus. And Lord, I want to pray for anybody who knows Christ right now, who is struggling, who is doubting, who has fear, whatever it is, Lord, I just ask that you would help them apply Jesus to that circumstance. Lord, raise up your church to believe that the only answer is Jesus, and if that we have nothing else, we have everything. And Lord, let us put everything else aside. And lastly, as we go through this book, Father, I just pray that you would mold our hearts. Reveal to us in all humility where we need to change, where we need your gospel to impact us. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.